Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a compassionate, non-violent, non-dualistic, inclusive faith life. My name is Dom Face. Sue Grimmett joins me for another episode from the Byron Writers Festival. Make sure you do check out the Byron Writers Festival on social media. Well worth the weekend down, isn't it, Sue? Uh, it certainly is a wonderful place to be and wonderful opportunities to listen and to meet people. And we are very excited to have Bruce Pascoe join us on the podcast this episode. Uh, a Ewan man, an author, professor of Indigenous Studies and uh, Indigenous Historian is a title I've seen given to you as well by a few media outlets, uh, who wrote the landmark book Dark Emu, uh, a book that has in many ways started a national conversation around having a more honest look at our history and some of the myths we've all been told growing up in Australia. His new book is Salt. It has just been released at the time this episode goes up. Uh, He's also recently published Young Dark Emu, which is the insights of Dark Emu for a, a younger audience. Bruce, thank you so much for, for joining the On The Way podcast. Oh, it's a g- great opportunity. Thank you. Um, look, let, let's just start for those who, who aren't familiar with Dark Emu and, and what's come out of that book. Uh, obviously, the, the, the core of the book is reviewing our whole understanding of Indigenous history. From, from an outset, how much of it, for if, if you've gone through the Australian schooling system and mm. you've been taught what they've been teaching for the past however long in the Australian schooling system, how much would you have wrong? Um. Ninety-nine percent. You know, I'm an Australian. I was educated in Australia, and my only memory of it at school was to colour in the boomerang. That's all I did in um, anything like Aboriginal studies. You know, things have improved slightly, um, but I went into a school in Western Australia start of the year, and there wasn't one book in the school library about Aboriginal people. And yet 40% of that school population was Aboriginal. Mm. I thought it was a disgrace. And it's indicative of the neglect that our country is um, given to um, anything to do with Aboriginal people or Aboriginal culture. Why do you, you know, I mean, there's obviously a whole host of reasons, um, but what, why do you think that there has been this deliberate history told, even still today? It's part of the colonial rules. It's how you steal a country. Um, because if you're a Christian country and you believe in thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and you do steal, then you have to come up with an excuse why it was um, within the the bounds of your God. Uh, And um, I think by the time the British got to Australia, the colonial rules had been refined to a razor edge and um, the, the best way to um, justify stealing land was to implicate the people in, in being uh, subhuman. And um, so everything to do with Aboriginal achievement was eradicated from the public conversation and people were demeaned. It happened in Africa, it happened everywhere. Uh, Cecil Rhodes in Rhodesia, a country named after himself, um, uh, he uh, made a law which made it illegal to refer to the Shona buildings in the town. These were two and three storey structures. They were magnificent. And uh, he made it illegal to refer to them uh, because that's the colonial principle. You can't um, justify taking land from a civilised people. And mm. so it, it became an illegal act and the same was done in Australia. 
history is never innocent, or the retelling or recounting of history is never innocent. You know, and I like you colouring mm. in a boomerang my childhood memory of any kind of education about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people was um, going out and making a gunya out of a stick and a bit of bark. Maybe that's just the bit I remembered, but mm. it would be all of the piece. And then I, I was a teacher after that, and. You know, it was not benign when after reading it, and Dark Emu for me was, was I had, had read some other things, but it was such an important work for me to read because it made me completely reevaluate everything I had told, been told and, and the presumptions and assumptions mm. that were mm. sitting in my head. Mm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I imagine that is what the response the book has received from many people. Probably, uh, certainly with me when I've, when I've read, mm. you know, the, the insights the book has provided, there is a sense of, of shock um, yeah. involved because my, my teaching in this wasn't that long ago when I was in primary and high school. Mm. The, the assumption always given or the, the information always given was that the indigenous peoples of this country were an uncivilized yeah. um, people and yeah. that the, you know, essentially we get images of throwing boomerangs and spear fishing, yeah. but almost like they were wandering around aimlessly, not knowing what they're doing yeah. here. Yeah. Um, you know, almost, almost as if they should be grateful that this civilized force came along and got things right. Yeah. Got That's things the better. national um, story. Uh, Aboriginal people should be grateful. Mm. So, so, you know, in, in I guess a summarised version, and obviously if you want more in-depth version of this, go and buy Dark Emu or, or Young Dark Emu out now. But what, what is the truth of the story that, that you've uncovered through these works? Well, you only have to read the explorers' uh, journals to find out the truth. And I was driven to tell the story in that way by the fact that uh, senior... Australian academics were criticising me for telling a story which they said didn't happen. So I realised then that if I couldn't convince the most so-called intelligent people in the country uh, that I would have to use a source that they respected and everyone respects the explorers, the so-called explorers. And um, when I started reading those journals I realised that it wasn't going to be very hard what was the hardest thing was cutting the material back in, into one book uh, because it, I, I, I kept on uncovering stuff and I still keep on uncovering stuff which was in those Australian explorers' journals. You, every library has them. Um, it's, they're, they're there in the plain light of day and yet we've read them with you know, masks over our faces and plugs in our ears. We've avoided anything to do with Aboriginal achievement. So the, the truth is that the Indigenous people who were here when, um, I guess, the, the, the ships came over were actually quite a civilised race. In many ways, one of the most civilised people um, that the world's seen. And these are some of the insights that the book does provide. Mm. Um, I know one of them, the one thing you do mention in the book, is that this is the country that invented bread, for example. Yeah. Um, and society. And society. Can you just speak on, on that a little bit? On, on yeah, well, we know that um, uh, there was a, a stone-grinding mill uh, for the production of flour uh, 35,000 years ago. That's when... Uh, dark emu went to print uh, but within six months of it going to print there was a an older stone found 65,000 years old the first people if you go to google or wikipedia and you look up bread it'll say the egyptians invented bread 17,000 years ago <laughs> aboriginal people were baking bread 65,000 years ago 
And this is the kind of uh, avoidance uh, of the truth that Australians are really good at. We should be celebrating that fact. We should go to France and go into a pastisserie there and say, I come from the country that invented bread, you know, really upset the French, but um, we should be proud of it. We should re rejoice in it. There should be a, a national bread day. And as for the invention of things like society, can you touch on that as well? Yeah, well, um, the oldest villages on earth are in Australia. Um, you know, once again, Google it, you'll find Turkey was 28,000 years or something, and then you, you look at Australia and the recent archaeology of villages 50,000 years ago. And what that means is that when people choose to uh, build their houses next to each other and have social intercourse with each other every day, uh, go about their daily lives in cooperation, that's the creation of society. And so Aboriginal people are clearly the creators of the social system. One quote that, that of yours, which I just found, um, I think this was at a speech recently that you gave, absolutely stirring, especially considering the moment we're in in the world today and, and the push for more equality and more unity, um, you know, and, and an overturning of unfair systems and unjust systems. You said that Aboriginal people who invented government 120,000 years ago decided that the worst thing they could do in a society was fight for land. They decided everybody would have a house, everybody would have enough to eat, everybody would take part in the culture. And you go on to say that we'll think of this era of change in Australia and say this was the moment we changed our minds about our country. This is the moment we became Australians. Mm. Um, and it is quite a recent movement it is one that is still mm. you only have to look at the australia day debates to see it still has yeah. some some kickback mm. um but but you you have commented a number of times that you have have noticed that australia perhaps white australia is starting to wake up and want to know its actual history yeah i think i think the fact that we're having this debate about australia day now and we haven't for 230 years is a really indication that um, australians are starting to reconsider uh the history their own history and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things have happened. You know, um, Kevin Rudd, you know, had a, an input. But the people who really made, the, made the, the good decisions and the hard decisions were, you know, people like Essie Coffey 50 years ago and Charlie Perkins and uh, Fred Maynard, those sort of people were doing the, this sort of work in an incredibly racist country. And so to be doing it now is much more comfortable than it was then. They had, they had their lives threatened. Um, you know, no one's wanted to kill me for quite a while. And so it's, um, you know, it's a different world we're living in. And I think Australians are much more comfortable with having this discussion. My generation can't. You know, Alan Jones on radio, um, Scott Morrison in government, people like that, they're not going to have uh, this discussion. But if we rely on shock jocks and politicians uh, for an advance in society, then we're wasting our time. We need to come up with the ideas for that advancement and then let the um, politicians prosecute them. But they're not going to come up with it of their own accord because our, uh, politics has degenerated to such a point that it's policy-free. Look at the last election as an example of that. They're the only... Um, you know, people that had a policy actually lost the election. Um, so it's safer in politics to think about nothing and just think about power. Mm. 
it, I suppose when you when you look at all this, there's an element where no one in a, no human likes to think that they're a bad person. No one likes to think they're bad, and as a byproduct, no one likes to think they're racist. Mm. But you, when you do examine it and you do think about it deeply, mm. um, I realise myself how racist some of the beliefs I have had through what mm. I was taught growing up mm. and what I went on to believe have been. Um, do you think that that core racism that seems to have existed in white Australia? Do you think that is starting to change, or do you think that is still a significant? Hurdle? I think there's a movement for change, um, but that racism is based in being European. Um, it, it comes out of our our churches, and it comes out of our politics, and it comes out of the culture in general that was exported out of Europe, and it happened very quickly as soon as those big ships could cross oceans, uh, suddenly Europeans were meeting people who weren't European and imposing uh, European principles and religions on the rest of the world. And it was incredibly influential um, and did enormous damage. If you, if you just read history, um, it was incredibly cruel. And so Australia's been you know, so-called living on the sheep's back here for 230 years and, you know, the, the best country on earth, everybody says so. And it, it's beautiful to live in Australia and not be shot at at breakfast time. You know, it, it is a real advantage for us. But how, did, how was that created? This um, whole beauty and peace in this country, who created that? And it wasn't Europeans. It was already here. And I think Aboriginal social and philosophical traditions actually influence people here. Now I think they're still, they're still influencing people here. And, you know, I've addressed congregations in churches uh, where I've been invited by priests and pastors. Um, you know, that's a phenomenal change when that starts to happen. And I'd hope, you know, that I, I really feel that the church has a role to play here. When you talk about local communities and small communities, I'm, you know, part of the Anglican church, which was part of the establishment church, you know, and so we come complicit mm. with with the actions. The Anglican church was caught up in um, colonial rule, benefited from mm. colonialism, mm. and, you know, in, in owning and truth-telling right now, I, I just don't think we're going to grow up as a church or as our people together until we can do a whole lot more truth-telling. And mm. the more you start to read, it's not even hidden, as you say. There's, yeah. you know, reading the cruelty, the genocide, you know, clear references to genocide, yeah. you know, that I find in, in um, official documents. And the church as having a part in mm. that machinery of governance is something we need to own and we need to hear the difficult truth of that. Mm. And then, I mean, my hope is as we hear the difficult truth of that, and I'm really, uh, I, I love you th talking about that we have to do it now amongst ourselves yeah. and not wait for the government. It's actually mm. finding a way that together we can listen to the stories and help and agitate for the next steps and form, uh, form groups as we um, gather around these, these truth-telling experiences that mm. can then say, what next? Mm. How, do, how do we move towards treaty? Mm. Look, um, the, you know, the church was obviously part of the problem um, in the attacks on Aboriginal people, but it can also be part of the solution. And I've, I've seen examples of that uh, truth-telling and um, a more constructive debate and more constructive action in the churches of Australia. Um, and it's, it's time, um, because 
the forces of conservatism, or see, I actually think the radicals are the true conservatives in the society at the moment, but that, um, that old the patriarchal system is still operational. I'm being sued at the moment by people who resent the fact that I referred to their um, great-grandfather's uh, horrible racism and um, murder of Aboriginal people. And, you know, I took that from public records. I took it from newspapers. I didn't take it from, you know, some skewed political journal. I took it from the local newspapers. And I had to... I spent a whole day on Wednesday away from my work trying to contest this uh, lawsuit. Um, and I... You know, I wasn't. I had to go back through all my research notes for Dark Emu and Convincing Ground, pointing out these horrible facts that this man had done, and it was hurtful for me because I'm related to some of those people. And you know, and I was reading things about my relations and their deaths and their prolonged pain and injuries that was just incredibly hurtful. And I know it's going to be hurtful for that family to read the truth, but nowhere, nowhere near as hurtful. Um, as it is for us. Uh, so that's the truth-telling that has to happen. And in all the, the good work that, say, the church does or public organisations do on behalf of Aboriginal people now, there's going to be kickback from my generation because my generation are complicit in the, the regulations, the laws, the legislation that are currently operating in the country. We all have to change. We're going to have to be patient with each other. We're going to have to be kind with each other. On Wednesday, I didn't feel very patient or kind. I, I felt besieged um, and I felt hurt and um, re-terrorised, in a way, by those horrible injuries, you know. A man deliberately shot in his knees um, to m turn him into a cripple and, you know, obviously septicemia got to him and he died, but that's an ugly thing to do. And it, it was that particular family's patriarch that did that personally and it um, you know we have to we have to own these things you know yes. because if if Australia in general doesn't own them it's going to be Aboriginal people who are burdened by it for the rest of our lives I don't want my grandchildren having to make this argument mm. they don't deserve to have to turn around and explain all this they deserve to be able to live a full and free and fruitful life. So then there's some people who are, you know, in the church who, who ha have still been complicit with racism. Um, you know, it is a, a church that has white origins that you walk into many churches and it does look <laughs> if not largely white, entirely white. And, and those people who don't engage at all because i think that's the key point is is i reckon i made it to the age of maybe 16 before i met an indigenous person to be honest in terms of having a conversation mm. i would have seen them but had an actual conversation with an indigenous person mm. there, there wasn't actually much engagement so it was a theory i was taught a little tiny bit at school there was a theoretical idea but there was no engagement with the first peoples of our country and the the depth of this story <clears throat> can you just talk about why you think for people who choose to follow this faith tradition and live deeply, consciously, compassionately, why this at this time is such a central point for Australia, uh, Australian uh, believers, I suppose? Yeah, look, uh, I, 
think we've had a habit of living in silos for starters, living in our own groups um, and haven't got out and actually just listened, met, engaged, you know, and that's been part of um, staying in a comfortable place. Uh, partly our education has blinded us to what has been in plain sight too. Our education uh, has, has meant we have a certain perception and I think I actually love the story Bruce tells, um, the perception that we, that we carry um, predicts what we're going to see and how we encounter one another. We, we have our assumptions that click in that are mostly not even conscious. And, and Bruce tells the story of, now I can't remember who it was that went and saw the possum skin yeah. coat. Um, I was really struck by the story, and I'll let you tell it rather than me, but uh, at how it speaks to um, how much gets in the way of our ability to see the truth. Mm. Yeah, she wrote a book um, called Campfires at the Cross, and um, uh, she had heard about possum skin cloaks and just assumed that they'd be cobbled together roughly. Um, she went to the Melbourne Museum where there was an example of one of these cloaks, Heather Le Griffin, her name was, and um, she burst into tears because what she saw were these tiny little stitches um, sewing the possum skins together to make this cloak she saw that there were sleeves uh, within the cloak um, to accommodate shoulders and babies and they were they were individual clothing items for individuals and um, she saw the the excellence of the seamstress in and um, burst into tears because of her assumption that it would be crude that it would be awful you know and um, that was a, a lighthouse moment for me. In the book, you won't read it in the book, you'll have to read the end notes to find that it, what she says about herself. Um, and it, it was really revealing. Uh, I live um, far east Gippsland and I'm sleeping under a possum skin cloak at the moment that my family made for me. I can guarantee their excellence. Uh, something else you do touch on um, in a lot of your work is, is well I suppose it is this whole theme of we have come to assume that what was put here was better than what was before and we are now coming to learn that actually it may well have been in almost every front or certainly many many fronts worse than what was what was here already mm. particularly in terms of how it treats the environment yeah. um, how we you know firstly there's, there's uh, so many foreign animals and plants and, and things being grown here that don't belong that aren't quite working this we're not able to work with the ground properly you talk about that a lot with the agricultural work but just generally it, it, you know there is this myth that we believe that that when colonialism occurred and, and reached Australia that it made it better but it, it, do you, would it be fair to say on the whole it, it's made the, uh, our respect our relationship with the country worse well in some parts of Australia, there's been 18 metres of topsoil lost. Um, and in all parts of Australia, we've lost minimum of three quarters of a metre. Um, that's not progress. Um, you know, we continue to get a bounce out of um, the country by applying superphosphate and uh, chemical fertilisers, but it's not sustainable. Um, chemicals, pardon me, chemical scientists will tell you that's not a sustainable way to go because you're spending money to improve the fertility of the soil 
when if you had grown perennial plants, it would have done it itself. And uh, we're destroying the chemistry of the soil by adding chemicals. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's not an improvement. Um, the society was egalitarian. You know, our society is no longer egalitarian. There are people living on the streets. There are people so disassociated uh, with, the, um, with the society that they perform acts of murder on each other. The, the mental health of the country is in desperate straits. Mental health is a real indication of how successful a society is. And we, we, we just keep turning our backs on people in, in trouble, um, hoping that, well, we're just isolated. We'll put them in jail, we'll let them live on the streets, we'll gradually um, let them die early, um, we'll get them out of our hair that way, instead of embracing those people um, and, and helping them uh, live a good life. Um, but it's very hard to get a 32-year-old who's lived on the streets for eight years and um, improved their life. It's better to get them before they leave home. It's better to get into that home um, and help all the people within it so that a child doesn't feel compelled to leave. And that, uh, what you're saying about uh, better just, you know, just let them, let them die and we won't have a problem mm. is exactly what I found mirrored in, in some, a lot of government policy documents. Yeah. And, and also, is what you're picking up on what you said earlier, Bruce, about churches and people actually having to live out what they believe, you know, what sort of God are you serving if that's mm. what it looks like, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and for the church, this is part of what I see is the church's role going forward in this is mm. that we should be we have um we we have an ex a witness of, of jesus who meets people where they're at in the, in the land and the context where they're at and actually as we come and and can listen to one another and see the care of the land that's been going on see the connection instead of the disconnection that mm. we have come as white people seem to have had this disconnection with land with one another and the kind of symptoms that we're seeing of a profoundly unwell society right yeah. now how can we recover and how can we allow um the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders of this land to maybe lead us by, by listening and actually going forward together uh, instead of the sort of disconnect that Dom's saying where we, we actually don't even meet and talk to one another at mm. all. Mm. We need to um, look closely at the history of the country and the social history of the country and learn from that social history about how people were able to care for each other but more importantly care for the land. And if you see Mother Earth as the primary influence in your life and that she owns you, not the other way around, you've changed your attitude completely because you're not in charge. We've, we've got to get rid of this idea that we're in charge of the Earth. Uh, we're just servants of the Earth and we have to, um, and our job is to care and uh, to protect, uh, look after her and you know, I, I was saying in the session just before that we have to talk about population in the world. There are too many people. You know, you know, and now people are talking about going, in, finding another planet with an atmosphere. You know, what happens when you destroy that atmosphere? You know, you're going to run out of planets. But really, our responsibility is to fix what we've buggered up here and to be really responsible about everything we do. I think there are some, you know, there are signs of promise um, the 
you know, major car companies are going to stop producing petrol engines in five years, I think it is. And that's an incredible thing to consider when you, you think of how reliant we've been on the motor car, that they, they're looking at uh, alternative energy cars. The government's not driving that. It's been driven by capitalists who can see that they can't continue to live the way they've been living. And every one of us should be looking at how we live, the waste we produce, um, the people who produce it for us, what kind of lives do they live? Um, because we live a very comfortable life in Australia, but who makes our shirts? Who makes our socks? Who makes our underpants? You know, and, that, and what, a, what kind of life do they have? And that, to me, taps into, Bruce, when I heard you speak at the Noel Oliver Memorial Lecture, you were talking about holding this hermeneutic of doubt, really, with everything that you come to. And that's, that's doubting our structures and our mm. systems, mm. doubting that, they're, um, that what we are told, doubting our history, you know, primarily you know, coming back to Dark Emu, doubting that everything that I was told that Aboriginal people were hunter-gatherers, you know, having, have, bringing that lens to say, actually, I can doubt all of that we have overwhelming evidence to the contrary, mm. you know, that the, not only we're not talking about a sentimental kind of care for the land, we're talking about a very practical and real care of the land and agricultural practices, mm. you know, doubting when we look at our, doubting our capitalistic systems for the, the abuse, that the harm it does mm. to us as a society. Mm. And um, I think... Overall, you know, for me, hearing that lecture actually crystallised what a lot of what you're saying in Dark Emu around this idea that that we need to come with some humility and doubt what been, we've been told and learn to listen to the land, to one another, mm. and uh, not just assume that those with power who are writing the history are telling us the truth. Yeah, we really need to doubt the. Um uh, the economic and political system under which we live. We don't need to be cynical. We don't need to be nasty. We need to be doubtful um, so that when we're told that it's a really good plan to woodchip the forests of Australia, send it to Japan on, on a boat and bring back on a boat the paper that Japan made and all of it goes through the Great Barrier Reef on diesel-driven ships... Um, you know, the eight-year-old child in us should say, why don't we make that paper here? You know, why don't we take the ships off the ocean and make the paper here and employ people, um, hopefully some ab Aboriginal people, in the production of that paper? When we hear, as a nation, that we are shipping our waste to China and Indonesia, um, we have to... And all of that going on ships through the Great Barrier Reef the eight-year-old child, and I should say, that's not right. If we create waste, it's our responsibility, not Indonesia's, not poor countries of the world. And the Chinese have done us a real favour by knocking back our effluent. Um, we, we need to take responsibility for that ourselves. And every time you know, we buy a packet of scissors that, that is encased in a hard plastic case that you can't break into without another pair of scissors... We, um, we have to doubt that this is the right way to go. It might be convenient for the manufacturer, but particularly the shop seller, because uh, pilfering from shops is apparently what they fear. But in the old days, there used to be people walking around those shops. There used to be shop assistants who would prevent uh, theft taking place. And we've eliminated labour from our retail industry 
and we're now starting to reap our, our sorrows. We did an episode on um, treatment of animals recently and we spoke about how the experience many kids have when you first hear that the, the steak on your plate came from the cow that you think is really cute in the, in the yard and that sense of shock. And mm. that doesn't make sense that you have as a kid that you just desensitise as you get older. And there's that similar doubt that that doesn't make sense that we have on mm. a whole bunch of things when we're a kid and you call it out, you know. Mm. That's not fair. That doesn't make sense. But as mm. you grow older, you just sort of assume that's the way it is and you just you, turn a blind eye. You rationalise it. Yeah. And um, the eight-year-old, the nine-year-old is still in that sense of wonder about the world and, you know, how beautiful a lamb is mm. and the shock children have when they realise that, you know, in six weeks' time that lamb is going to be killed uh, for their table. Mm. So just remember to, if we're going to move forward as a country, to mm. engage with that part of ourselves again mm. and and actually critically doubt. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's we, the way we forward. We need to be, you know, apply doubt to everything that we hear and see. Um, not sarcasm, but doubt. Just, oh, is, is that right? What would happen... You know, if we stopped, you know, sending our wood chips to Japan through the ocean, what else could we do? You know, doubt, doubt, doubt. It's not negative, it's positive. Because mm. that's where the true creative spirit yes. turns up. Uh, when you doubt something, you think, I, could, I think I could do this better. That's not anti-Australian. You know, that's positive scientific economic application. And it's not anti-faith either. We often talk in podcasts about, it, about certainty is the opposite. You mm. know, that, that actually doubt is, is absolutely at the heart of faith and can never be separated. Mm. Well, Bruce, we realise that you have to head off to another engagement here at the festival, but we are so grateful for your time on the podcast. Um, get a copy of Dark Emu or Young Dark Emu if you want to read more on this, or the new book Salt, which has just come out. Bruce, uh, your work is, is incredible and, and doing incredible things in this country. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, it was lovely to have a yarn. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.